This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. All throughout the 1990s and the 2000s, from before the time Michelle was murdered, through Operation Speed Bump, and onto his retirement, former Sheriff Bill Farrell was doing some creative collecting of public funds. Several stories over several years by both the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the Southeast Missourian explained how Bill Farrell was raking in six figures on top of his salary through reimbursements. These stories were set off by state audits done every two years. The audits would flag the behaviors and the press would write about them. Here's the basic bones of how it worked. Farrell would buy his own vehicles, and he would have his deputies drive them, then he would claim reimbursements on every mile driven. The vehicles were oftentimes junkers. One former Sheriff Department employee said that one of the cars used by the Sheriff's Department at one point was an old Mary Kay car that was pink. Farrell claimed in some of these articles that this was barely a break-even proposition, that it was totally legal, and that it's just how he preferred to do business. Post-Dispatch reported that he and only one other county in Missouri took reimbursements this way. The former employee, however, told me that Farrell fabricated documents to steal public dollars to add to his coffers. For example, a deputy might drive to Sykeston to deliver 20 warrants, but Farrell would do 20 separate claims on each delivery. This employee at one point said she would no longer help with certain activities. Instead, those duties were picked up by Brenda Shivitz. The former employee said she was afraid to speak up, but tried to help auditors the best she could. She said she feared for her family and children to walk away. She said Farrell was intimidating. She said one time she added up the reimbursements that Farrell received, and it was about $180,000 in one year. That pretty much matches what the newspapers uh, were reporting at the time. You probably already know through direct knowledge or intuition that reimbursements cover things like maintenance and depreciation of vehicles. But multiple sources familiar with the situation told me that Bill Farrell would have his vehicles repaired by his friend Tom Brock, whom the former employee told me often ate breakfast with Farrell at the Shoney's restaurant. It just so happens that Brock was busted on multiple occasions by federal agents for being a chop shop operator. He'd take stolen cars, disassemble them, and sell off the parts. Two former detectives, one a state officer and the other a federal, told me They suspected the Farrell was covering for Brock. They said Brock always seemed to be one step ahead of their investigations. In one example, a detective told me that when they finally did catch him with a stolen vehicle on his property, there was only one left. He didn't quite have enough time to remove all the vehicles before the property was searched, the former detective told me. Another former law enforcement officer told me that Farrell directed his deputies to drive the piss out of those cars, even take them to Cape Girardeau to do their shopping if they wanted to. Quote, Bill's patrol cars. Ricky would fix them for free. Ricky was paid $800 a week in cash, but Bill would not be charged anything. There were stolen transmissions and front ends in patrol cars. Unquote. This source, who was not in law enforcement for long, said he knew that Ricky was cooking meth out of the salvage yard and that drugs were being moved in and out of those stolen vehicles. Quote, I know so. Brock told me out of his own mouth there was a car out of Texas that had 30 pounds of pot in the truck. Unquote. One known drug dealer that I talked to who dealt in drugs in the 1970s and 1980s before being arrested in a high-profile drug bust told me separately that Brock helped him move drugs. This former dealer told me that Brock was useful when he needed to make a vehicle disappear. 
This was essentially a generation before speed bump. Rick Walter told me that Farrell would also buy cheap cars on state bid and flip them a year or so later. He could buy cars to own as his with the privileges afforded to public entities. He would own the vehicle, have his deputies drive the cars, claim the reimbursement, then sell the cars for thousands of dollars of profit in the private sector. Audits also flagged Farrell for how he handled prison meal reimbursements. He could receive $3 in change for the meals he would serve, but auditors found he would charge two meals a day whether the prisoner ate a meal or not. In other words, if a person spent the night in jail after supper and left before breakfast, he was officially housed on two separate days, which would equal four meals, though he had eaten none. The audits also found that Farrell served on the bank board of which the sheriff's department deposited funds. The auditor flagged that as at least the appearance of conflict of interest. They noted that he was also claiming mileage for bank deposits even when there were banks in Benton that could be used and he could save the county money in reimbursements. Now let's forward to 2006. There is some $10,000 or more missing from the DARE funds. DARE is the acronym for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. It's a program that's meant to educate youth about the dangers of drug use. Farrell would hold annual golf tournaments and other fundraisers to, to raise money to educate kids on the dangers of drugs. And in 2007, Farrell was indicted because this money was missing. The former sheriff's employee told me that she told the FBI and a grand jury that Farrell just kept the money from the DARE fund. Farrell was indicted and the case was given to a special prosecutor in St. Louis. Eventually, the charges were dropped without much explanation at all. It's speculated that Farrell ended up giving the money to a different charity. Which brings me to this newspaper article written by former Standard Democrat publisher Mike Jensen. Jensen was a longtime journalist before taking on a management role at the newspaper and he had a lot of influence on what got covered and what did not. He would have known about all of the reimbursement shenanigans that were covered in the Southeast Missourian and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. I'm going to read an excerpt of this column. Quote, By way of disclosure, former Scott County Sheriff Bill Farrell is a friend of mine. So when I express satisfaction that an indictment against Farrell was dropped this week, please understand that I am not an impartial observer. As I assume you have heard by now, stealing charges brought against the former sheriff were dismissed this week by a special prosecutor appointed to hear the case. When the smoke fully clears on this episode, there needs to be a discussion on the grand jury process and the unbridled power of some elected officials. The public needs to understand the process that drug Farrell through the mud and how this could happen to virtually anyone. Farrell deserves an apology, but we doubt seriously that will ever happen. Let it be said that there is no single person responsible for the smear campaign that Farrell endured, but there is a, quote, story behind the story, unquote, that involves what I see as an orchestrated attempt to harm the reputation of a long-standing public servant who deserved a great deal better. For those who have known Farrell during his long career in law enforcement, his reputation remains intact. But for those who hang on the fringes, that reputation may forever suffer. And that is just plain wrong. We hope the day comes when the full story of the Farrell indictment is revealed. It would make for some interesting reading, that's for sure. But for now, we hope our entire county is relieved by the dismissal of this ugly episode. We remain as convinced today as we have ever been that Bill Farrell did nothing but serve this county with dignity, professionalism, and honesty. Apparently, a special prosecutor with no axe to grind came to the same I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to 
The Lawless Files. When uh, you were assigned as an investigator, was uh, Mark Abbott a suspect in this killing? No, sir, not at any time. Neither Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampired or printed. Why was that not done? I don't know. I, I don't know that they weren't. I, I don't know. But he answered when we got to talking about the conversation of Josh Kiesler being the one that done it. Abbott just looked at him and just kind of laughed a little bit and he said, yeah, they got, they got the wrong guy for that. He said, I took care of that bitch. Bill Farrell, Kevin Williams, and a whole bunch of other people were getting paychecks from a bullshit company called Morley's Payday Connection. That letter, I called Sheriff Farrell myself. I said, well, would you like me to come down and, you know, talk to me about this? He said, no, there's no need. He said, I don't need to hear anything from you. I've got my conviction. Case closed. That was it? That was it. In, in episode 10, I kind of edited out a, a portion of a, step, of, a, of a story that you told that kind of bubbled out from the, the, regular, um, um, the, the regular narrative. So I edited it out, but I think it's an important story to talk about. And that is um, the, um, you know, when, when, when you're in prison and you're looking at this uh, case and how it gets momentum and everything, one of the key things that really kind of set things off was your grandmother um, being able to finally get hold of your case file. Um, that's a, you know, that's a big moment. So I wanted, I wanted to ask you about that. If you could kind of tell that story and how that, uh, how that played out for you guys, because that, that was a big moment. You guys have been trying to get that for a long time, right? In, in this case, we're referring to my grandmother and the work that she put in and the time that she put in, and not just my grandmother, but my grandmother and my grandfather, uh, Jane and Hadley James. They're both passed away. Um, my, my grandfather Hadley passed away the year I got out, actually. He passed away the December of 2009. Um, 2009, I was released. My grandmother, Jane James, just passed away this past December. Um, and the work they put in for me is, it's fundamental to the understanding of this case. They were the couple, my grandparents were the couple that paid for my attorneys. They paid out loads. They were paying all those so that all those can pay David Rosner. So they were essentially paying their paychecks uh, so they can represent me, their grandson. And they weren't wealthy people. Uh, my, the, the money they were spending was re retirement money that my grandfather had worked his whole life to, um, to amount so that he can take care of his family, um, you know, all of his daughters and all of his grandchildren, not just one grandson. And he can take care of his wife and, and his son. And instead, um, Bill Farrell decided to absolutely decimate my life. And my grandfather, the antithesis of Bill Farrell, uh, decided to put everything he had, all of his resources, in the save of my life. Well, unfortunately, as we all know now, um, almost three decades later, that didn't work. Um, doesn't take away from his efforts, but it didn't work. But they weren't done fighting, even after the conviction. They weren't about to just rest and give up. Like, I, like I've stated before, 
Uh, giving up's not in me, and it's partly not in me because it was never in them. And following my conviction, my grandmother continued this hillbilly, you know, country church woman that everybody knew in Southeast Missouri in the Delta Chaffee area as Aunt Janie. In advance, knew her as Aunt Janie. She didn't have any quit in her. Now, did she have any legal understanding, any legal knowledge? No. But she continued to do her part in what she considered her part in, in reinvestigating the whole homicide and the murder and to build um, a case for me to establish my could, alibi. So if I could interject here real quickly, um, yeah. you know, you, you uh, shared some of those files that she had kept. Um, you were down here for the funeral and she shared, shared some of those files. And there are like pages and pages of handwritten notes where people would call her, or she would call people and she would just write down all of the information that she was getting. It's, it, you know, on the back, the back of an envelope or a receipt, you know, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was getting ready. To, I was not to interrupt. I was getting ready to say writing good luck following all those notes because <laughs> she would, she when she would write me in prison and she did this, you know, with my cousins as well when she was writing them when they were incarcerated or even when she was taking notes or giving directions for somebody when she was writing on a piece of paper, she used every piece of the paper. So she would write on the edges. She would literally, if she, she felt like, why waste the back of the envelope? She would yeah. write on the back of the envelope. Uh, if, yeah. if there's anybody, and, I, and I, I'm sure there's people out there who think that Josh is doing this for himself. Why would I do this for myself? I didn't bring myself into this. I have no interest in continuing to do this for myself. There were people, there, there are people that were on this world, and there are people that are on this world that deserve this story being told. My grandmother is one of them. My grandfather was one of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, she traveled back and forth to Kankakee to... Um, you know, to get mileage down, she would literally like time. How long did it drive? Did the drive take from this spot to this spot? And she did all these things. But what she never had, what was never given to her and her entire investigation, um, you know, through the through the having conversations with anybody that would talk to her um, about the case, um, any, you know, any friends that, you know, there were alibi witnesses for me or anything. Um, trying to do her best to um, prepare a new defense in my appeal. Uh, the one thing she never had is the one thing that she paid good money for her and my grandfather paid good money for yeah. was my file. They had, they had my trial transcript, but they never had my file. They attempted to get my file. My grandmother attempted to get my file. That's what I mean by my file so that the listeners can understand a file is not merely a trial transcript or a, a transcript from a hearing. A file is all the written notes, um, mm -hmm. all the recordings, you know, all the statements, all the photographs, everything mm -hmm. uh, that the attorneys, that my defense attorneys had and that the prosecution had. There's, there's so much that's not in the court transcript. All of the um, information that's not in the trial is is huge um because like you said it shows the, the brady violations but it also has references to other things that are th that yeah. are connections like if you're just reading the court transcript that's that's not a that's not enough you know yeah but re sorry. reading in my case you know actually just reading my court transcripts is enough to prove my innocence well that's true yeah but the but the reality like you're saying is each brady violation everything that's not in the transcripts everything 
you know, just, just the way the nuance that, you know, the way a sentence is written by an investigator or by the attorney can really direct you and help you understand a person's personality or the way a person thinks and can really help you understand the case. But my point is my grandmother put in all this work and she didn't have the file. And the why behind that is a mystery that really to this day has never been answered. And unfortunately, because Al Lowe's has passed away, will never be answered. And, you know, that's, that's extremely unfortunate. He, to put it bluntly, lied to my grandmother and my grandfather about my file. After I was sent to prison, I had to change an attorney. I had to get a new attorney. Um, Al Lowe's had decided he, he was no longer going to represent me. Um, he botched my trial case. He just did a trash job and misguided David Rosner and botched it. And afterwards was not willing to continue to represent me. And that being the case, my family and I, we needed the file to move forward. So there were times where I would contact them and call them from prison. Um, at, the, at that point, I was in the old walls in Jeff City. And I was calling them, trying to get the file. My grandmother was calling them regularly, trying to get the file. And they claimed they had given the entire file to Gary Brotherton, which had been appointed as my, my appellant attorney. Um, Gary, um, one of the few times me and him ever communicated, I can't remember, we, I don't think we ever spoke on the phone. I mean, we might have, um, but the, I shouldn't have a might have memory with that. There should have been more communication between me and Gary. But in one of those, he, he said he didn't have the file, that you know he had what they gave him, but they didn't give him everything. So we were trying to still get the file from Al Lowe's. And whenever we contacted him, he would say, we just gave it to Gary. And when my grandmother would contact, she contacted him regularly because she didn't believe it. And neither did I. So she would contact him regularly. And there would be times where he'd say, well, we just misplaced it. We don't know where it's at. Oh, we found it. Oh, we don't know where it's at anymore. He kept obstructing uh, my grandmother's ability to get my file and obstructing mine. And my grandmother, God love her, um, just kept trying. Well, in episode 10, you go over how um, Jane Williams and my grandmother, whose name is Jane, her Jane James, um, they connected and Jane Williams wanted to help my grandmother. Well, in order to really do that, Jane needed the file. So my grandmother was a praying woman, strong Christian woman, and Jane Williams is a praying woman, a strong Christian woman. So they decided, from what I'm told, um, this is secondhand information because I was, in, I was in prison at the time. They prayed, and they spent some quality time praying together over this, that God would make a way. And, you know, for them to get the file, God would make a way for them to get the file. And when they got off the phone, um, I don't know if my grandmother went into the office or if she called the office, I've heard different reports, um, but I believe last time I was told she called um, Al Lowe's office, Lowe's and Drush, and there was a new employee. And my grandmother asked about the file. He said, well, give me a minute. Let me go check. 
and he went in the back and he came back quickly. It, it, it wasn't a long time. It was quickly and said, yeah, we got it. You want it? My grandmother said, yeah. So she went there and whoever that employee was helped my mother, helped my grandmother load the files into the back of her car. And there we go. Without those files, it's, it's, without those files, it's important for people to understand I'm not free because Jane Williams doesn't have the information to present a proposal that would then get the American College of Trial Attorneys' attention and get Charlie Weiss and Steve Snodgrass and Jim Worse's attention out of Brian K. Bladen Paisner. And I'm still a falsely convicted man. And we're, we're even that much farther away from ever getting Angela Michelle Lawless justice. A man named Matt Moore, who is family friends with Mark and Matt Abbott, told investigators in August of 2006 that Mark Abbott paid Taco Speakman to get rid of the gun that was used to kill Michelle Lawless. Moore, who died in 2015, said he was at a residence in Commerce, Missouri, and Mark Abbott was bragging about killing Michelle, and Kevin slapped Mark and told him to shut the hell up. He stated that he heard from Mark Abbott that he was supposed to have killed her, but he couldn't, and that Kevin took the gun away from him and hit him upside the face with the gun and shot Michelle. I honestly don't believe that last statement was true. No one has indicated that Mark Abbott had any kind of wound on his face in the days following the murder. Moore went on to say that Mark said Taco was paid to throw the gun into the river. Again, I don't know if that's true. I've heard about six or seven places the gun supposedly ended up. Moore's statement was kind of all over the place. He said that these same suspects might have been involved in the 1994 murder of Randy Martindale, which sent Kevin's close friend Ricky Clay to death row. I do think that Clay is most likely innocent of that murder. There's enough doubt there that the governor commuted his sentence to life without parole instead of the death penalty. And while the motive tends to lean toward life insurance collection, I do believe that drugs were kind of tied to the motive of that murder in some way or another. I don't want to get sidetracked, but the best theories I've heard on that case are Martindale's wife and her boyfriend were more likely the culprits. I, I'm not sure, to be honest. That's a long story, and Ricky Clay deserves to be heard. Anyway, back to Matt Moore. He stated, quote, If someone was using a payphone and someone went by and took a picture of the car with license, make, and model, and color, sounds like a perfect setup to me. Now, this is the only statement in my entire investigation where it was stated that a photo was taken at the payphone. I don't know if it's true or not. Moore went on to say that Abbott Williams beat Michelle up on the embankment and then put her back in the car and shot her. He also said that Williams ran to the Feral Mobile Home sales lot and hid out there because he worked there and would have had to have been there in the morning for work. So parts of his story seem to add up, other parts not so much. According to Kevin Williams and others, he was not employed at the sales lot, but that doesn't mean he wasn't doing odd jobs on a per-job basis. However, the idea that Williams fled to the sales lot following the murder has come up once again. out of the bag a little bit uh what were some of the key moments for you um in terms of um really untangling the fact that uh josh might be innocent 
Wow. Okay. Uh, I mean, you had all these rumors for right. all these years. You, yeah, there um, was rumors that that he wasn't involved. Right. You know that he that he was innocent. Uh, you know, Josh had an alibi that nobody seemed to care about. Uh, that was one of the things. You know, Josh had been visiting his. It wasn't visiting. Somebody, one of his cousins, had got hurt in an accident uh, that night of the murder, and he's in Kankakee, Illinois. That didn't go anywhere. You know, nobody believed that because. Um, they just thought it was somebody covering for Josh, you know, just a relative. So right off the bat, you've got him 350 mile plus away from here at 1230 at night. You know, Michelle was discovered around 130 or so that morning. So there's no way that he could, he could have made it down here. Uh, the evidence against him, as far as getting this car, you know, that he was supposedly in a, in a car, uh, went and got the car waited on her, murdered her, took the car exactly back to where it was at, dropped it off, and then, you know, I don't know how he was getting around, you know, um, but that didn't happen. Uh, there was supposedly blood in his car uh, that was, uh, you know, it, whenever they sprayed it with luminol, it lit up like a Christmas tree. It was so bright. That was a lie. There was nothing in There was no blood there. This jacket that supposedly belonged to uh, Josh, we had it tested. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't blood. There was some specks on there, on his jacket, that might have been the size of a pencil lead, maybe. Uh, we, we tested that. It wasn't even blood, you know, and they said, again, you know, that was, that was told that, yes, this was his jacket, and he had blood all over it, and it was just, you know, all this evidence that was all, all about uh, Josh, that, that there wasn't nothing there. So every time there was uh, the, the evidence that they had, wasn't adding up. It wasn't evidence. It was just made up. It wasn't long after the Matt Moore interview when police interviewed Helen and Robin Natvig, who you've already heard from. Another separate source told detectives that her son was in jail with Kevin Williams and Williams told him that the Abbots had murdered the girl. I reached out to this source and her son, but they didn't respond. In 2007, Ray Ring was interviewed again. He told police he knew nothing about the case and stated he didn't even know what detectives were talking about. He said he did know the Abbots and Williams and told police he sold drugs for Mark and even drove his truck from time to time. Ring said he had no idea why anyone would bring his name up into the investigation. What did you think when you heard that uh, Rick Walter had reopened the case. I felt like that was an interesting turn of events. How that, how we found that out. Um, my attorneys, rather than doing it over email or a phone, um, Charlie and Steve, I don't know if Jim Worsh was with them at the time. They drove to Benton in Scott County, drove directly to the sheriff's office to notify them in person that they were now representing me and that they were going to get me out. They wanted to look them in the eye, man to man, and let them know. Says everything you need to know about Charlie, Steve, and Jim, doesn't it? Yeah. And uh, they went there, and that's when they discovered there was a newly elected sheriff, and Rick informed them, and his country broke. <laughs> well, isn't that interesting? 
because he, while running for sheriff, part of his platform was is that he was going to reopen the, the lawless murder case. My, my lawyers didn't know about that. I didn't know about that. And once he got elected, he, in fact, did that. And it just coincided after a decade and a half of me being in prison and no one doing anything and no one really caring and my life disappearing into the ether. Now, at the exact same time, I have the most powerful attorneys in the state of Missouri. Fact, look the men up, look the law firm up, law firm up. And I also have a new, uh, a new sheriff at the exact same time. These men are representing me. He's reopened the murder investigation and neither one of them knew that they were doing it at the exact same time. It's pretty crazy. It's God, Bob. There, I, I, for years, I prayed when I was on the inside. And I got some insight into how I should believe, at least, that God moves in human life. That when we ask God for something, it's not just about me. That my heart and my life are not the only what's the right word, um, component to how God interacts with human life. That because this case involved others and involved law enforcement and involved the lawless family and involved judges and other human beings like Kenny and others, that the proper way to pray for God to intervene was for him to move on everyone's heart to bring things together and to believe that he was capable of doing that, even in a way that I could not foresee. And when you look at how this unfolds, you've got a woman who happens to walk in and see me on my knees. Five years later, starts corresponding with me, a blind woman. She's completely blind now. Just so the listeners know, completely blind, can't see anything. She, walks and lives in the dark or she would say in the light because she lives with God, but medically she's completely blind. Can't see anything lives in the dark. And for the last, some of the last years of her ability, because she went completely blind shortly after I got out of prison. So for the last portion of her life, she spent that time seeing, seeing my case. And at the exact same time, you've got Rick Walter running on my case. You've got my lawyers taking my case. Sets us up with a judge who gives me a ruling that had never been given to another man in the history of the state of Missouri. That is God, Bob. It is, I am not saying that I am... That God loves me more than other people. I, I you know, when I got out, it says proof that God loves me. I think that's true, but I'm not saying that. Well, that means that God doesn't love some other poor, you know, whoever, who it's not happening for. I'm not speaking into that. I'm speaking into me, into this case. 
And I am not so arrogant as to not credit God. I am very thankful for everybody that God used. But the way that everything came together, the miracle after miracle after miracle, the, the coincidence after coincidence after coincidence, eventually convinces you that it's not a coincidence anymore, Bob. That everything is happening at such a rapid pace that it has to be more than coincidence. The new detectives would interview Robert Taco Mincellis again, and this time Taco told police that Mark Abbott, Kevin Williams, and a man named Kevin Miller were present at the crime scene, and that Williams pulled a gun on Abbott and told him it was her or him, and he made him shoot her. Now remember, Mancillus had said earlier he didn't know anything about the murder. I do need to add that Kevin Miller could not have been at the murder scene that night because he was in custody at the time. Taco told the investigator that he'd heard Lawless knew too much about the drug dealing being conducted between law enforcement and the Abbots. Remember, Mancillus had earlier claimed that Bill Farrell and Larry Abbott had come to his house regarding the weapon. As you're going forward uh, with this, 2006, 2007, you know, like, at what point do you kind of switch from, okay, Josh is innocent, to now let's look at who actually did this? Do do you remember? I'm sure that's in the back of your mind all the time. It's not just Josh's innocence. Well, and it wasn't. We didn't, and honestly, you know, I had my, uh, I had my thoughts and my opinions. Uh, again, I tried to keep every, all that to myself uh, because I, I still didn't know, and I was still trying, actually trying to connect Josh with some of these other people that I was really kind of being suspicious you know, to me uh, it, because, again, more than one person had to do this, and Josh was convicted, right? Our, you know, our court system, if that's the best in the world, right? We're supposed to you know, believe somebody's convicted, they're convicted. They did, they're the bad guy. So I'm, we're still trying to connect these folks with Josh Keezer because maybe maybe that maybe he was involved, maybe Josh was involved, maybe they helped him, maybe they were involved. Uh, and and the more we looked into it, we we could never make that connection. We tried. I mean, we we went out of our way to try to make that connection because you don't you know we don't want you don't want an innocent guy to be sitting in anybody to be sitting in uh, in prison for something they didn't do, but this from the beginning, from that night, the the initial statement that Mr. Abbott made, because, because we don't know which one it was, at the jail, was you need to get somebody down there that right, right, as soon as possible. You need to get somebody down there right now because there's a girl been shot. Nobody thought that was suspicious at all. Didn't think anything about it. I thought it, 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 was, it was kind of suspicious because... We didn't know she'd been shot until we found the spent casings. So from the, that was probably the most, the only honest thing he ever said in this whole process was that uh, he knew the girl had been shot. My question was, how did he know she had been shot? The only way you knew that is if you saw somebody do it, you did it, or I, I, you know, yeah, because he didn't even see the gun. He didn't. Yeah. There was there was no. Again, we were there for a while before we saw any, any so right off the bat, uh, what the first thing that was out of Mr. Abbott's mouth was that to me that was suspicious. How did he know?
On November 25, 2007, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch broke the news to the public that the Michelle Lawless murder case had been reopened. The story focused on Rick Walter, the officer who responded to the scene, and had later become sheriff and reopened the case. That in itself is a pretty cool story, but it also laid out a lot of the basics of the case. Here's an excerpt from about halfway through the story. Attorneys at Brian Cave plan to file a petition on behalf of Kieser that will ask the court to vacate his conviction based on new evidence. Kreider, who said Kieser argued with Lawless one week before she was killed, now says she mistook Kieser for another man at the Halloween party. Lawless wrote about the man she met at the party in a diary passage. It wasn't Kieser. Another round of testing this year showed Kieser didn't match any DNA found at the scene. The Sheriff Department discovered a November 1992 police interview in which Abbott identified a black man he knew from Sykeston as the driver of the white hatchback. The report was never given to Kieser's original defense team. The whole exoneration experience of it being reported from Ben Poston's article, which you know, I know you work for the Southeast Missouri, but we need to bring Ben Poston's article into this because that was the first big one. Yeah. Right. I mean, you got to give credit where it's due, Bob. Yep. Right. Mm -hmm. And Poston put out that enormous article for St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Hey, and shout out to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch for, for not only wanting, but allowing a massive article of that size, because that's not every day you see that. Um, took up two complete pages and of a major city newspaper and so, so throughout and then you got bridget de cosmo coming in and seeing me on a regular basis putting out all the articles and the constant conversations i'm having with steve with jim with charlie um the 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 regular phone calls i was making to your office calling you guys like every day talking about something <laughs> um i was engaged Right. I was engaged in the case at that point. Um, I, again, expected to win. And I remember having the uh, conversation with Charlie and Steve. It was funny that I even had this guy. But Jane talks about it. I said, you know, you almost fired him at one point. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> That's called trauma. Because we got into a little bit of a debate, you know, about how they just wanted to get me out. They thought I was a good kid. And at that time, I was, I was in my early 30s, so I wasn't necessarily a kid anymore. But I am to them. I still am to them, even though I'm 46. Uh, I was a good kid, and they just wanted to get me out. To them, that was, the, that was the goal. And my argument was, no, that's not good enough. I'm innocent. I need my name back. So Walter found the notebook that Brenda Shivitz had said was thrown away, and that notebook contained the Ray Ring document. Witnesses were coming forward like Ron Burton and Kathy Fowler, and Josh's attorneys were really gaining steam. And then Walter found out that Bill Bonert had taken a statement from Mark Abbott all those years ago when Abbott told him he watched William shoot Michelle and run to the mobile home sales lot. Bonert was asked if he would testify, and he agreed but he would find out there would be consequences for that. So was it uh, Josh's attorneys who reached out to you and asked you to testify? Yes. Okay. 
Um, so you, so you uh, told them that, and you agreed that you would testify to what Mark told you? Yes. Okay. So I understand that you got a, a phone call from someone with the SEMO Drug Task Force before you uh, went to testify in that case. Is that correct? I didn't get a phone call. They called me in and talked to me direct. It was the head of the uh, the uh, SEMO Drug Task Force at that time, Kevin Glazer. I said, well, you know, I said, I don't think you should testify because uh, you don't really know what Abbott told you was the truth. And uh, I said, well, I don't know what what the truth is. I said, most times I don't know half what, believe half what my supervisors tell me, but I said, uh, I know what he told me, <clears throat> and uh, that's when I'm going to testify. How true it is, I don't know, but uh, that's what he said. Okay. How does the SEMO drug task force, like what's the reporting, you know, what's the infrastructure of that look like? Um, I know SEMO drug task force is a unit all across kind of the, the southeast Missouri area, and different officers are, are, are part of that track task force and, and can do yeah. um, drug investigations, but can you t tell me a little bit more about how that's, are, are, you know, are they're not paid by the SEMO Drug Task Force, is that correct? There are some private ones who just work directly for them, but the officers who are assigned from different departments, it is run by the Highway Patrol. The uh, leader of it is was Kevin Glazer at the time I was there, and he was a sergeant with the Highway Patrol. Okay. And uh, basically, we had to follow their rules and, and regs and policies. And uh, but you I, but you were employed by the city of Cape Girardeau. Yeah, right? but I was assigned to the Seymour Drug Task Force. And uh, um, when we were there, like I said, uh, Kevin had called me in and told me he said, you know, I don't think you should testify because you don't know what Abbott told you was if if it was the truth or not. And I disagreed with that, so. Yeah, can, can I ask you this? Um, uh, to that point, you know, Josh Keezer had been convicted of this crime, and there was never any kind of drug motive associated with the lawless uh, murder whatsoever. Um, why would the SEMO Drug Task Force weigh in on this at all whatsoever? Well, I I don't know. I mean, a lot of it was there was some a bad publicity uh, with with the Highway Patrol about this case. Uh, you know, after after the investigation by Rick Walter started, there was a lot of bad publicity toward that. There was another case down south. <clears throat> I think they were trying to see if the uh, comparison of the bullet in that, in that murder case and. And the, the Michelle Lawless case might be connected. Uh, there was some uh, wrangling, and it was the a lot of it was the the Missouri Attorney General's office felt like we had, they had the right person in jail. Uh, they were pushing back on this this whole trying to overturn this conviction. Um, then I, I think the patrol had some bad publicity over it, and and I, I will say this, you know, the, the patrol works off of publicity. You know, that's what they're going to be out there doing. And I don't know if it was Kevin's idea, or somebody from up above that told Kevin to talk, tell me this. But uh, uh, I was kind of surprised when they they came and told me that I shouldn't testify. Didn't yeah. say I, I can't. They just said I shouldn't. Okay. I told him, I told Kevin that I, Kevin Glazer, that I was going to testify. I didn't even really think there was anything that important to it. I thought it was yeah. just an off-the-cuff conversation at the time that said, hey, you know, do you really think this is a good thing to do? 
Well, it wasn't even uh, probably a week or two later, I got called into the assistant chief's office in my death and thing, and he said uh, they wanted me off the drug task force that I couldn't be trusted. The case that Bill Farrell, Brenda Shivitz, and the state of Missouri made against Josh Keezer was that he met Michelle at a party. Michelle turned him down, and in turn, Josh set out to kill the girl a week later. The state offered no evidence at all that suggested that drugs were involved in this killing. Yet we have the director of the SEMO Drug Task Force telling Officer Bonert that he shouldn't testify in Josh's appeal hearing. Bonert says, sorry, not sorry, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go up there and testify to what Abbott told me. And then the director of the SEMO Drug Task Force calls Bonert's boss and says Bonert's off the task force. That Bonert, for telling the truth as he knew it, could not be trusted. Southeast Missourian reporter Bridget DeCosmo wrote one story after another after the original series of stories hit the presses in April of that year. I was the managing editor at the time. Bridget was an absolute bulldog. I was unconvinced that we needed to open up a lot of old wounds on a reopened case, but she convinced me that there was nothing to the original conviction, and she threw herself into the story. By June 1, we were two months out before a judge would decide whether Josh would get a new hearing. As she reported these stories, the names Mark Abbott and Kevin Williams appeared in her copy. Mark Abbott wrote to her from prison. In that letter, Abbott said he believes it's possible he could have been wrong in identifying Josh Keezer as the man in the car by the payphone. Quote, I ask myself, could I be wrong about him? And the answer is yes. At that time, I believed it was him, Abbott wrote. He went on to say that when he identified Keezer, that officers looked like they'd, quote, hit the lottery, unquote. The letter stated that his story hadn't changed, but rather, quote, they changed it, unquote. Abbott wrote that he heard information from other people during the time of the original investigation, and those things might have influenced his identification. He said, quote, I've asked myself a million times if I could have been wrong, and today I really believe it could have been possible, unquote. About a week later, depositions would start in Josh's exoneration trial. Again, Josh's team would call people that you've heard from already, Ronnie Burton, Kathy Fowler, Helen and Robin Natvig, Bill Bonert, David Rosner, and others. But another key witness was Chantel Kreider, who, at this point, had a different last name and a different story. Tell me again how it came to be and when it happened that you were riding around in the car and learned that it may not have been Josh Keezer. Just go back and start your testimony about three minutes ago. You're about to hear a reenactment of Chantel Kreider Carlisle's testimony. There are two sections of testimony here. One set of questions is from Josh's attorney team. The other set of questions were asked by the attorney representing the Missouri Attorney General's office. Both attorneys will be read by the same voice actor. Okay, about how I realized it was Todd Mayberry that we had the altercation with at the party? Yeah, just start over. Because Alicia wanted to go out with this guy, wanted to go riding around, there was two of them. And when did that happen? It was after she had been killed. Was it after the trial? 
And I believe so. And when I got in the car, you know, the person in the back was Todd Mayberry. And I told her, I was like, this isn't going to work because he was the one at the party that slapped me and called me a bitch. And I told her I wanted to go. And she said she was going home. They dropped her off at her car and they said that they would drop me off. Dwight did. And I believed them because it was just two blocks over. But they didn't take me home. What did they do? They took off with me took me on some back roads and I didn't know what was going to happen to me and I didn't know how I was going to get away. And so all I did was pray when I seen the first car with lights hit a pole. I grabbed the steering wheel and I ran the car into the pole. Then did you get away? Yes, I did. I told him to call the cops and call my mom. Are you certain as you sit here today that the person you saw at the Halloween party that you testified at trial was not Josh Keezer? It was not him. You were married after the trial of Josh Keezer to Clyde David Franklin, is that correct? Yes. Did Clyde David Franklin introduce you to Mark and Matt Abbott and Kevin Williams? Yes, he did. How long after the trial do you think that was? Was it in 94, 95? It was in the winter of 94 because I got married in the spring of 94. And were these people, the Abbott twins, Kevin Williams, etc., in a drug ring? Yes, they were. Were they selling or distributing? Yeah, they were. What were they distributing? Methamphetamine. Do you remember an occasion when you were forced to take some meth? Yes, I was. Who forced you to do that? Mark Abbott. Can you describe that occasion for us? David took me to his shop. David took you to Mark Abbott's house? To his shop. David is David Franklin, right? Yes. And then people just like started disappearing. And Mark, I, I seen somebody put a gun underneath the towel and put it in his truck. And he came up behind me and told me, he, he laid out a line of meth and he told me that to do it. And I told him that I didn't want to do it. And he told me I was going to need it. He told you you were going to need it? When I seen the gun, I did it because I was scared. And he told me that it was going to be my last ride and made me get in the truck with him. My question to you, Mrs. Carlisle, was were you ever around Mark or Matt Abbott when, and Kevin Williams when something was said about the murder of Michelle Lawless? Yes. Can you tell the court about that? I went to a hotel with a friend of mine named Danielle. I, I can't. With who? With a friend of mine named Danielle. And, well, they showed up, they being Kevin Williams, Mark Abbott and Kevin Williams, and I overheard them talking about they had to get rid of me like they did Michelle, but this time they were going to throw my body into the Mississippi. You weren't with them. You were overhearing the conversation? I was overhearing the conversation and trying to pretend I didn't hear it. I, I went through complete and total hell after the trial. Because this weighed on your mind? Not because this was weighed on my mind and because I had people messing with me because they thought that I knew more than I did and didn't want me talking. And the people you're talking to? I'm talking about Mark Abbott. I'm talking about Kevin Williams. I'm talking about all of them. Did you, as a result of this, move out of the state? In 96, I couldn't take no more, and I asked my mom to, for a plane ticket out of here, and I took off to Cheyenne, Wyoming. So you lived in Cheyenne, Wyoming for a while? Yes, I did. How long did you live in Cheyenne, Wyoming? About four months, and then I moved to Indianapolis, Indiana. How long did you live in Indianapolis? A couple of years. Did you eventually come back to the southeast Missouri area? Yes, I did. And when did you come back? I came back in 97 for a couple of months, and then... I went to Memphis, and I stayed down there in the Memphis area for a while. You're aware that Mark Abbott's in prison, right? Yes. And Kevin Williams has been in prison, right? I don't know. Yes, Kevin Williams. Yes, I do. I'm sorry. 
As I understand, the person that you thought you saw at the Halloween party that you identified at the trial as Josh Keezer had light brown hair and was clean cut like he was at trial, right? Right, yes. He didn't look like anything like he did in Exhibit... 51? Uh, exhibit 51. Nothing like that. Okay. I think that's all the questions I have, Your Honor. Thank you very much. You testified that at trial you identified Mr. Keezer as the person you saw at the Halloween party? Yes, I did. And you believed that to be correct at the time you testified, didn't you? At that time that I testified. And do you remember how long after trial it was that you had doubts or changed your mind? When I started getting messed with in 94. Okay. The trial was in 94. At the end of the trial, it was after the trial. It was in the winter when my husband that I married introduced me to these people. And which people would those be, ma'am? Mark Abbott, Keith Williams, Kevin Williams. It was after you met Keith and Kevin Williams and Mark Abbott that you realized you made a mistake at trial. Yes. And what led you to realize that, ma'am? Because things I overheard and things that I had to endure. C uh, could you tell me specifically? You just heard some of it. I mean, your life being threatened, making me do things that I didn't want to do, overhearing them saying they had to get rid of me like they did her. What more do you need? You said your car ran into a light pole. Is that accurate? Yes, that's accurate. Was there a police report made? I don't know if there was or not. I got home. I didn't care about a police report. I cared about getting home alive. So, and I want to make, uh, I just want to make sure I understand what you're saying. Uh, I'm not trying to upset you at all. That's fine. Uh, as I understand what you're saying now is that things you endured and heard from the Williams and the Abbots are what led you to believe you named the wrong person at trial. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. And when, like I said, when I realized that was Todd Mayberry when we got in the car with him, he was the one that we got, had the altercation with. Okay. Because when I was at the party, that was the first time I had seen these people. I mean... Let, let me ask you this. When was the first time you were asked if your trial testimony was inaccurate? When, when was the first time somebody approached you? I don't remember that day. Did you approach someone else, or did they approach you? I was approached. Who approached you, do you recall? Detective, I mean, Investigator Sullins. Investigator Sullins, and he was working for Mr. Keezer? Yes. Do you remember what time that was, or, or what year, or anything? I don't keep up with that. Did he show you a photograph, or did someone show you a photograph from Mr. Keezer's defense team? He showed me a picture and asked me to make sure if that was the guy that I seen at the party, and when I seen that picture, that was not him. And this picture looked different than Mr. Keezer did at trial? Yes, it did. Very different. How did it look different? Because at the trial, his hair was, I mean, it was clean cut. It was a brown color. It was not him. In the picture they showed you, he wasn't clean cut and his hair was a different color. His hair was black in that picture. I mean, and it was totally cut differently. I mean, it's not him. I don't know. So the person, the person in the picture wasn't him because his hair was a different color and it was black. Uh, basically, was it the person? The person looked totally different. The picture of Mr. Keezer looked totally different than Mr. Keezer did at trial. Is that accurate? Wait a minute. What are you trying to say? I I'm trying to figure out. M may I approach, Your Honor? Is that the picture you were shown by the investigator? This one? Yes. No. Is this the picture that you were shown by the investigator? This one? In this, he looks totally different in this than he did at trial. Is that accurate? Yeah. 
And that's when you realize that you were naming the wrong person when you saw the picture of him where he looked totally different. Is that accurate? Honestly, I realized it before. But you didn't. But I didn't come forward because I was scared for my life. And when the investigator came and showed you this picture, did that have any impact on you? This had a whole impact on me. The whole thing has. I meant your opinion about Mr. Keezer being the person that you saw at the party. Did the picture affect that, the, the picture you saw? Yeah, I mean, not the biggest effect that it had on me was that altercation when I realized with Todd Mayberry when I got in the car with Alicia O'Dell and Dwight Butner. And this was before the trial or after? After. And it was in, uh, I think it was in 1994. I don't remember you... the exact date that happened. I just told you when I got introduced to the Abbots and Keith and Kevin. I don't know the exact month and day. And you mentioned something on direct exam about the Abbots and Mr. Williams making incriminating statements. Can you tell me about that? Yes. Please? They were talking about how they needed to get rid of me, like like they did Michelle. Where, where were you guys when that happened? We were at Hatfield Inn in Sykeson, Missouri. And in is, I guess... It's a hotel. A hotel. Yeah. I went in with my friend Danielle, and then they showed up. So I assume it was like a lounge in the hotel, or help me out? We had a hotel room. Okay. And I was invited with her, and I went in with her, and then these people showed up. And they told you that... They didn't come right out and tell me to my face. I overheard them talking. Okay. Amongst themselves? Yes. And they were talking about they were going to do to you as they had done to Ms. Lawless. Yes. And why did they say they were going to do that? Because they thought that I knew more than what I actually did. They were scared that I was going to go to the cops and talk to them. Now, when you say knew what you actually did, you mean... I remember saying, I didn't know their names at the time, but Mark and Matt Abbott, they had black and white face on, and Todd Mayberry was at the party, and I didn't realize it was him, like I said, until I went with Alicia and Dwight. So Mark and Matt Abbott were at the Halloween party? Huh? Mark and Matt, was Kevin Williams at the Halloween party as well? I don't remember. I can't say something when I'm not for sure. Okay, that's all the questions I have. Thank you very much, ma'am. Just one question. Mrs. Carlisle, you say that they thought that you knew more than you did. You were afraid that they thought you knew more about the drug operations too, right? Yes. I have no further questions, Your Honor. Just one question. It wasn't the drug operation, as I understood your testimony. It was also that they thought you knew about the lawless murder. Is that accurate? Both. Okay. Because I can sit here and tell you one time when they drove me, had had me in the car again, and they drove me up to their shop, and their dad, Mark and Matt's dad, was there, and they were there, and they were doing their business, and when I walked up to the door, he said, get rid of her. Who said get rid of her? Their dad. Here at the end of her testimony, Chantel Kreider is testifying that Larry Abbott told his sons to get rid of her after she walked into them doing their business in the Abbott's shop in Scott City. She testified that one of the twins forced her to do a line of meth, telling her she would need it for her last ride. She said she heard one of the twins and Kevin Williams threatened to kill her like they did Michelle, but they were going to throw her body into the river. She testified that when she figured out that one night when she was in the truck with Mayberry that it was he was at the party with Michelle and not Josh, 
that she was so scared she grabbed the steering wheel and forced the vehicle into a pole. It's a lot to take in. Chantel Kreider was sure now that it was Todd Mayberry at the party. But there are some problems with this testimony. She is the only person to testify that there was any altercation between Mayberry and Michelle. Mayberry, who has since died, at the time of the original investigation, denied that any altercation between he and Michelle took place. Michelle wrote about Todd Mayberry in her diary, but she did not write that they had fought or that he had called her friend a bitch. And according to the party host, Don Worley, Mark and Matt Abbott were not at her party in face paint. Chantel declined to do a recorded interview with me, but she does stand by her story that all of these threats were made to her only because these people believed she knew more than she did about the murder. When directly asked whether she was threatened or coerced to testify against Josh, she says no. She says the faces that she recognized in the courtroom were the twins in the face paint, the boys who again Don Worley says were not there. She says Bill Farrell convinced her while she was being sequestered away from the courtroom that they had a lot of evidence against Josh and that they had the right guy. At other times, she has said that she really did think that Josh looked like Todd Mayberry. Todd Mayberry was a stocky, broad-shouldered man. Josh Keezer was a thin man. Josh had dark black hair. Todd Mayberry had blonde hair. They do not look like similar people. It's a story that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I also wonder about Chantel's original testimony where she stated that she had never seen a photo of Josh Keezer in the media before seeing him in the courtroom. She testified that Michelle was like a best friend, but she never went and grabbed a newspaper or saw the evening news when an arrest had been made for Michelle's murder. She said she married David Franklin, but didn't meet the Abbots until a few months after the trial. She's named in the speed bump files, along with her husband, Ray Ring, and others. But you've heard now directly what Chantel said under oath. Whether it makes sense or not, whether she left out important details, her testimony helped Josh in a really, really big way. Chantel's 2008 testimony shredded any semblance of motive the state had against Josh. Josh's lawyers, Charlie Weiss, Steve Snodgrass, and Jim Wersch, would put on one heck of a case for Josh Keezer. They did so much work. And some of the most interesting testimony that they would get would come straight from Mark Abbott himself. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Gray. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukacek, who helped voice the court transcripts. Again, please go to thewallacefiles.com and subscribe.
coming up on The Lawless Files. So he called them and said, hey, you need to have him call his attorneys now. I said, oh, and that's when the officer ran into the gym, right, and told me you need to go back to your cell and call your attorneys. This is the order of events. They didn't, but I finally get them to answer the phone. They answer the phone, and the first words out of their mouth is, we got it. I said, we got what? We got what we wanted, Josh. Huh? We got actual innocence. All of our episodes are dedicated to the memory of Michelle Lawless and to all the abuse survivors who were willing to share their stories with us. Be sure to go to www.thelawlessfiles.com to purchase an access pass for bonus content. And if you wouldn't mind, go to Spotify and leave us a good review. Again, thank you for listening to The Lawless Files. We appreciate everyone's support.